I'm John Stevens. I'm Matt Russell. This is Podhavers. So uh, I'm, we're going to have a series of conversations uh, on Pod Have Mercy uh, that includes a lot of wonderful and great people who love Jesus, who love the Bible, and who love United Methodist Church. And Adam Hamilton has been with us in town, and he's the senior pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas, which is outside Kansas City. Been married to LaVon for 40 years, two daughters, a granddaughter, written 35 books. I've told him if I if he'd let me steer his life, he could write 135 <laughs> books because I can keep him. I can keep him. Like, because, I, you know, I don't sit around and see, this guy's so amazing, man. Somebody somebody asked me, we were walking out of church, hey, uh, Pastor John, would you pray with me? I have surgery on Wednesday. I said, yeah, I'll make a note right now. And, and Adam stops and goes, no, we're going to pray right now. I was like, that's not efficient, Adam, but it's awesome. So anyway, I really appreciate you being here. And we're going to have some great conversations with some wonderful people about the future of the United Methodist Church. And I just... Thank you so much for being a part oh, of this. John, thank you. Thanks for entrusting me to ask the questions of your of our panelists, and I think it's going to be a great conversation. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Thanks. Well, good to see you both today. Great you to will. have a chance to hang out with Thanks, you. Thanks, Adam. Mm-hmm. So uh, the claim that, that I get, you know, I hear all the time, I get Facebook messages and Twitter messages and all this saying, you know, is the United Methodist Church changing, changing its doctrine? If, you know, are we going to give up the Trinity? Are we giving up the divinity of Jesus? Are we giving up the virgin birth, the resurrection? What do you two say? Short answer? No. You know, I have three little kids, and whenever uh, one of them, they all try to negotiate with me all the time, right? And uh, one of them will come to me and say, Mama, I really want to do this. And whatever reason they give me doesn't work. And so then they come up with three other, uh, you know, attempts to try to convince me to get on board. And, um, (laughs) And I feel that's kind of what's happening here is that the issue that's really going on is a difference in interpretation of Scripture, not authority of Scripture. We all agree that the that the Bible has primary authority in our lives, or at least I I know does. Um, But but it's really about sexuality. That's not working so well. And Mm -hmm. so now we're coming to, well, it's really about the authority of the Bible or it's about the Trinity or it's about the resurrection. Everyone I know believes in the Trinity and the resurrection and and the virgin birth and yada, 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 all of it. And so I just, I think that it's kind of um, more of a campaign, you know, of, of trying to convince than it is a reflection of who the United Methodist Church really is. You know, our articles of religion, our confessions of faith, they're they're not changing. They really can't even change. And nobody that I know wants them to change. And so I just feel like it's a misrepresentation of the reality of who we are. It's it's a desperate attempt to distract, maybe create some fear, and then some movement. That is so obvious because it goes to such extreme. When I have this conversation with my people, ultimately we end up saying, are you saying that we're going to rewrite the Bible? Really? No. That doesn't even make sense, yeah. you know, but it's coming from a place of desperation and that's kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so when people come to you and say, uh, you're one of your parishioners comes and says, is it really true that we're not going to believe in the resurrection anymore? Or the United Methodist church isn't believing in the divinity of Christ anymore, or the meaning of his atoning death. What do you say to them? Yeah. I tell them there is no way that that is true. And I ask them to look at the evidence of their own experience in the mm-hmm. United Methodist Church. I say, look at the folks in our congregation. Mm-hmm. Are you experiencing that here? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Then I tell them stories about um, conversations I've had with pastors in Denver and in Georgia and in Oklahoma and in Florida. And all of a sudden, whenever you start to talk about the broader picture and also what makes what they're actually experiencing on the ground, they realize, wait a second, that doesn't track with what we're hearing. Yeah. And you know, my dad is an engineer, and um, he he's been listening to all you know all kinds of videos and things online, and he's been um, tracking what people are saying. And he comes to me and he says, Lindsay, have you noticed that there's like four or five data points that just keep being shared, or stories that get shared over and over and over again?" I said, "Yeah," and he goes. But that's like such a small set mm-hmm. <laughs> out of the overall, you know, breadth of the United Methodist Church. There's six point 
something million Methodists in the in the USA. There's 12 million worldwide. We're hearing four stories. Mm-hmm. He goes, I would never be allowed to use that in my workplace as a justification for doing anything. And I said, yeah, dad, that's true. You know, so I just think that there's um, kind of some reframing that's happening here. And it's interesting to me because as a pastor, I try to look at my congregation and love on them where they are. And this is both exciting and frightening at this point because the exciting part is that because we have such a rich, true history, there are members of our denomination who will not hear that and even think twice about it because they know better. They live it. They see it. We sing the hymns. We recite the creeds. We, we pray the prayers. And every Sunday, we come out of there thanking God for the privilege of reliving. There are those. That's the exciting part. The frightening part, though, is that there are the others who've just not gone very deep, who've not really had very much thought about it, and now they're being pressed to think more. Yeah. And, and, and I'm prayerful we're going to save most of them because they're in and we just need to message to them in a way that helps them get it. So I'm hopeful that out of this will come more disciples. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. So there's a series of videos that I was watching the other day from a United Methodist pastor, and, and he asserts that uh, after the GMC leaves the United Methodist Church, the UMC is no longer going to believe in the re- resurrection and the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus. And uh, you may have seen these videos too. I watched them. I was angry. I'm like, that is just not right. But what do you two say? You're, you're United Methodist pastors here in Texas. Uh, is, that, is that how you see things? So, so I've got to be real with you, Adam. And, and, and so you look at me and I've always been this black, okay? I'm a black man. I grew up in South Louisiana during the late 60s and early 70s. And early on, I had to choose what I paid attention to. Yeah. Because I'm accustomed to cultural moves that are designed to inform and persuade that are rooted in nothing more than lies. Right. Okay, I mean, I don't need to explain that to you. I love my church, and I love the people in it, but there are some that I cannot engage. So no... I haven't watched the video. I understand from the reactions for those who have that it wouldn't be good for me to watch that video or any of those videos because they're so far from the truth yeah. until it would take me to a place of pain that I choose to avoid. Lawrence, that's really powerful. Uh, we live in a time, you know, it's always been this case, but today we talk about fake news an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And that applies in so many areas mm-hmm. where people use what what appears to be, you know, they, they seem to be telling the truth. But if you dig down underneath it, you go, hey, that that mm-hmm. isn't the fact. Those aren't the facts mm-hmm. at all. Lindsay, how do you see this? Is this <laughs> is this a form of fake news or what are, you know, what is this? Is it, how do you see it? You know, I think that in our culture, generally right now, there's a spirit of fear. Um, and I mean that in pretty much every way that from the pandemic, from economics, global issues. And, and I think that that spirit of fear is entering into the church. And um, it, fear is powerful. Mm-hmm. And it can really, you know, kind of cause us to question things that we hadn't questioned before. And, and I understand it. It's kind of built into <laughs> our brains. But, but um, a spirit of fear is not really what Christians are called to live according to. And so whenever I have watched those videos, I just, I hear that spirit of fear over and over and over again. And it makes me question, is this really of God? Um, because God doesn't tend to use that mm-hmm. spirit of mm-hmm. fear. Um, you know, Jesus would meet people where they were and love them and invite them. That, that was his way. And um, so I see these things and I think, Okay, what is motivating that? Mm-hmm. What, what's behind that? Um, because everyone who is in leadership in the United Methodist Church knows that that the blanket statements are not true. Right. You know, they know the resurrection right. is not on the table. <laughs> they know the Trinity is not on the table. They know the virgin birth is not on the table. Yep. And so you just it makes you wonder. Okay, why are we going there when we all know that's not mm-hmm. the case? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
you know, and... Um, but isn't it so that sometimes when you hear a persuasive person speaking, and the person I saw is a, you know, he's articulate, he's, you know, he sounds so, I mean, it just sounds so truthful that if you don't really know, because, you know, I get these messages, Facebook messages and emails from people like, is this really happening? Because they're watching it and they think it might be true. They think it, you know, and so um, we know that it's not on the table. We know there is no way on God's green earth, the United Methodist Church is going to give up the historic essentials of the Christian faith. Right. But I think when, when some people watch this and they're, you know, and they're not really certain, it can seem really compelling. It can. It can. And I think that um, part of the reason it feels compelling is because people want to be true to God. They want to, you know, they want to be faithful. Right. And so whenever you say if you do this, you're no longer a faithful person, right? That goes to the core of, wait a second, I want God to be proud of me. I want to be in line with God's will. And, um, and it's, I just, you know, in, in the gospels, the earliest sin of the early church was this question of, who counts mm. as a real Christian? Mm. Who counts as a real Christian? And James thought it was the folks who practiced all of the Old Testament laws, right? And Paul thought none of that mattered, mm -hmm. right? And that it was only about faith in Jesus Christ and the experience of the Holy Spirit. And Peter's the rock of the church. <laughs> Why is Peter the rock of the church? Because he's holding the two of these guys together, mm, right? right? Mm. And so in Acts 10, Peter's still trying to figure out what to do about all of this stuff. And, and so God sends him this vision of all these things that are unclean. And then he goes and meets Cornelius. And he realizes, oh my gosh, if God has brought them to a place of faith, mm -hmm. if they have the experience of the Holy Spirit, who am I to keep them from mm -hmm. baptism, mm -hmm. from full inclusion in the church? The early... <laughs> the earliest sin of the early church was this pharisaical kind of attempt to say that there was anything except for faith in Jesus Christ mm -hmm. and the experience of the Holy Spirit that should keep the church divided from one another. And I just feel like we're having a kind of a resurgence of that because there's so much division in our culture of this within the body of Christ, if you are not with me on this, I cannot be of you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it feels like mm -hmm. that early sin coming back again. But I think, you know, my approach, Adam, is a little differently. And because I've lived longer than Lindsay, and uh, again, you know, I've lived a different kind of life, I'm not tempted to listen to voices yeah. based on how well they present. Yeah. Because I had to choose early in life whose voices to hear because it was a matter of life or death for me many times. Yeah. And so what I caution my counterparts about is if this guy has never been that important to you and if you've never been persuaded by things that he or she may be saying, pay attention to that. Yeah. Pay attention to that because what makes them the authority? What makes them so important all of a sudden that now you've got to redirect your thoughts and your behaviors based on this? Right. Well, and you know, Beth Moore, who is a leading kind of conservative voice um, in the United States, um, in the Christian world anyway, she put a post out recently and she said the, the quickest way to convince conservatives to persuade them to go your direction is to convince them that there's a liberal wave that's about to take them over. Mm. And I saw that and I thought that's so interesting because I think that if you ask the average layperson how their church is doing, they'll say, oh man, we have this food ministry, we, mm -hmm. we do this with kids. We and But it's only whenever there's been this new um, conversation about, oh, the, what's happening <laughs> nationwide and how things out here affect us over here, that all of a sudden people are getting kind of worked up about it. <laughs> well, is, is that true? Mm -hmm. Does that really have, anyway. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a really good point, Lindsay, that that uh, and I love Beth uh, Beth Moore's quote. I hadn't seen that, but the um, the picture of persuading you know beginning to put fear in people's hearts about what's happening out there. But when you look at your own local church, you go, "My local church is doing mm -hmm. great. I don't see mm -hmm. any of this. Nobody's preaching these things. Mm -hmm. Nobody's you know this is the church I've always loved, and it hasn't changed. But there's this fear of this thing out there somewhere. And again, fear 
<clears throat> is a primary driver in politics. It's a primary driver in, you know, in motivating people to leave a denomination and to go to another denomination. And all you have to do is you have to find a couple of off-the-cuff remarks, yeah. and then you put them under a microscope mm -hmm. and make them a lot bigger, yeah. and then you post that out there and say, this is what it is. Right. Well, that's half of a percent of a whatever, but you, you act as though that's everything. Well, that is scary, but it's an outlier position. Right. And it's sometimes a quote out of context without yes. understanding what was the rest of what the person was saying. And it's a quote from somebody's memory as opposed to something that's written down. I remember somebody saying this. Well, mm -hmm. I'd like to hear from the other person. To, and to did be you clear, say that? And what did, what did you mean by that? Most of the time, there's a dual fear factor. The perpetrator is acting out of fear mm. to create this scenario. Yeah. Okay. And I could unpack that, but you, I mean, clearly uh, this other denomination that was going to be global are now rethinking whether or not global is a little optimistic. Okay, literally. Uh, so there's fear there of how can we, and so the best way to try to gain momentum is to take that and create fear on the outside. Yeah. Mm. So it's a dual factor of fear here, both of whom I believe serious thinkers and people who want to know the truth yeah. can see through. You know, it's interesting. So on this doctrinal piece, th there is some truth to the fact that there are people in the United Methodist Church who <laughs> maybe their doctrine isn't quite as, quote, pure as what mm -hmm. some people would like. Mm -hmm. You know, when I joined the United Methodist Church nearly 40 years ago, I knew there were people who were, you know, on the, on the ends, on the sort of far ends of the spectrum, on both the right and the left. But, but I also knew that's not what this church believes and stands for. And so, you know... Uh, yeah, but Jesus also had disciples <clears throat> whose beliefs and orientations towards the world were totally different, and mm -hmm. he still prayed that they would be one, as right. he and the Father are one. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah I, I love the picture of uh, of um, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot both being Jesus' disciples. And mm -hmm. Simon the Zealot, of course, worked for the Romans. I, I'm sorry, Matthew worked for the Romans. Simon the Zealot was the one who wanted to <laughs> expel the Romans. They were the they were the exact opposite when it came to their you know their political views. And the other thing for me is that. Whenever we take any scripture and we say, this is the way that it is to be understood, I mean, that doesn't track with my experience of going back to the same verse mm -hmm. for 30 years, mm -hmm. and every time I do, the Holy Spirit shows me something new mm -hmm. in that yeah. particular passage. Mm -hmm. That's because when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit is like the third part of, you know, part of that experience. You have the scripture, you have yourself, but then you have the Holy Spirit who's showing you something new there. And, and so it concerns me anytime where we say, this is the only way that this can be understood because you're almost removing the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. from the experience of scripture and placing ourselves as that judge mm -hmm. and putting ourselves in the position where only God should be. Guys, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. Very powerful. I so appreciate your insights and I know everyone else does as well. Thank you. Thank you. DeAndre, John, great to be with you today. Uh, I also wanna ask you a question. There are folks who are asking in the post-separation United Methodist Church, as, as some call it, uh, will there be a place for traditionalists, people who embrace the traditional understanding of marriage? Are they gonna be marginalized? Are they gonna be forced to leave? Are they gonna be exiled? Or, or will this be a church for traditionalists as well? You know, as I've had conversation with colleagues from really around the U.S., around uh, from various annual conferences, even from folks who are in central conferences and whatnot, what is overwhelmingly the uh, characterization that everyone has about the church that they want to be a part of, the kind of church that they have felt called to and have been a part of, is a church where there's a room for everyone where this isn't a dividing issue for us, but this is a place where we can gather around the communion table together and still be in ministry and in service to one another, even if there's maybe a bit of breathing room for each other to be able to live in, or to be able to express that in different ways, right? Uh, I don't think the United Methodist Church uh, post-separation or currently uh, will uh, in any way prevent traditionalists from being able to live out there uh, their sense of how best to be faithful both to the church that, uh, into which they've been ordained, uh, into which they've been called, in which they have their membership, as well as uh, their sense of how to interpret Scripture and to faithfully proclaim that. Yeah. How about you, John? No, I, th this is one of the things that I think is, 
I'm, I'm going to be really nice. I'm not going to use R-rated language. Watch it's, it. And I'm going to be careful. It's, it's ludicrous. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I'm, I'm from Georgia. I've, I've spent the first 22 years of my ministry in the southeastern jurisdiction of the United Methodist Church. All right, So I know people in every conference in the southeast. And I tell people, and I believe this to be true, there was a, there was a study that came out that actually some of the folks who are in the caucus groups that are trying to peel people out of the United Methodist Church that said, oh, look, the vast majority of United Methodists are traditionalists. That's actually true. I think the vast majority of United Methodists are traditionalists, but they're also compatible. Right. When you look at how they look at this, because they're saying, but now what's being happened is they're presented with this false dilemma that, oh, well, if you're going to stay in the UMC, you can't be traditionalist. If you if you're traditionalist, you have to leave the United Methodist Church. That's the biggest crock of bull I ever heard in my life. The vast majority of people that I know in the Southeast are not leaving the United Methodist Church. They don't feel threatened. There are examples. There are specific examples when people say, "Well, you're going to be forced to do things, or you're going to be forced to change your position." You're going to. I'm traditionalist. I'm not forced to change anything. Yeah. I'm not going to be forced to do anything that my conscience does not allow me to do. And we see that historically in the United Methodist Church when we changed our our position in the book of discipline on being able to remarry people who are divorced a lot of pastors decided they didn't want to do that because you couldn't remarry divorced people um, in the united methodist church up until the 30s or 40s when we started changing the book of discipline when i came into the ministry in the late 80s early 90s there were still a lot of pastors who were at the end of their ministry that would not marry people who had been divorced unless it was for the reason of adultery that that their spouse had left them yeah. and they and no one ever forced them in their church to marry anyone no one's ever forced me to marry anyone no. people have come into my office and said <laughs> i had one time a couple came and they said hey we want you to do our marriage we want you to do our wedding like in two weeks i was like okay well let's talk about this they said well our divorces are not final yet whoa <laughs> and i said yeah i'm not your guy <laughs> this is not it's not gonna happen i mean it, we have never been Forced? Have you ever been forced to do a wedding? No. No, and it's not going to happen. It's yep. never happened in the history of the church. It's not going to happen in the history of the church. To say that you're not going to have a seat at the table is the most ludicrous thing that I've ever heard in my life. Now, to be inclusive, to be like Jesus, right. to be willing to sit at the table with everybody, yep. yeah, I'm a traditionalist, but I'm not going to not sit at the table with somebody. Right. I mean, this is the key, right? No, there are, and you, you said this so well, there are so many traditionalists in the United Methodist Church. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's a majority, but it's a large number. It's at least, it, I would say at least half. And, uh, and so if you look at that, we're not going to cut off half the church and say, you're marg- you know, we don't value you. They're, in all of our churches already, we value and we have people who are traditionalists and progressive among our members. They sit in Sunday school classes together. They love one another. The one thing that I have said, and you just articulated it so well, is that we are going to ask that every United Methodist Church be a place that welcomes people, that loves people, just like Jesus did. That's, that's going to be a requirement of every pastor. We're going to love and welcome people. And we're going to have different ways of interpreting and reading scripture, right? We're going to see some things differently, and that's going to be okay. That is what the future of the United Methodist Church looks like. And coming back to this question of being forced to marry people, I mean, currently the Book of Discipline, what's its position on a pastor's authority to marry? It's the pastor's. Yeah, it's the pastor's discretion, right? Uh, (laughs) Discretion to uh, choose whom to marry, uh, et cetera. Now, currently it has a restriction around uh, same-sex marriages uh, and whatnot, and that may, in the future for the General Conference, may decide to to lift that, but still it'll give pastors discretion on whom to marry when couples present themselves. Right, and I, I've heard pastors say, you know, when they've had gay and lesbian people who wanted to get married, and they've, they've said things like, you know, I'm not comfortable with that, but I know a pastor down the street who is, and I want you to be a part of the church, I want to welcome you, but there is a church down the road who can do this, I'm not comfortable doing yeah. that. I mean, you, I'll, 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 well, I'll say, you know, uh, I'm, my wife is white, and we are in an interracial marriage, and part of our history is that not everyone was very welcoming and receptive to us. Yeah. So when, it, when we came to the decision to marry, we looked intentionally for people who would love and support and encourage us, not who will give us a chapter and verse as to why interracial marriage is against God's will, which is what some people wanted to give us. Um, so, you know, my sense from uh, my colleagues who are um, LGBTQ or whatever, who might want to be married, 
uh, is that they're going to look for people who actually want to do that. Exactly. I don't think a whole lot of uh, us uh, traditional type folks who uh, would have an issue with doing that would get a whole lot of requests. I don't think there's going to be a couple coming to me going, I know you believe our relationship is an abomination before God. We would like for you to honor and bless our marriage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you don't do that, then we're going to sue you or something. Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think, so here's well, and here, let's be clear, though. You don't think their marriage no, is an abomination? No, I don't think yeah. that. But what I'm saying to you is, I'm using an example. It's yeah. like, they're not going to go. And here's the other thing. There's so much harm that's been done to the LGBTQ community that, I mean, first off, my daughter didn't want to get married in a church. I mean, I don't know. We, we have fewer weddings actually in churches than we've yep. ever had. Yep. But I'm just making the point that there's not someone going to come say, hey, will you do my wedding even though you think we're living in sin? Right. It, it, and I'm not talking about me. I'm talking yeah. about someone. They're not going to do that. Right. They're going to find someone. Everyone who gets married wants someone that they have a relationship with, someone that they know loves them, someone that they know cares about them. So yes. that whole idea of being forced, that is a false flag. It, it, and, and here's an example when they say, well, your church is going to be forced to do things. We have an example right here in Houston, Texas, in the Episcopal Church and the diocese here and, 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 and Bishop Doyle. That's right. Bishop yes, Doyle. Andy Doyle. The, the, Andy Doyle, the, the, what they've done here is an example of what the church can be. All right. So they don't force any church to do anything outside of their conscience. But the Episcopalian church has lifted the restriction. Right. So a lot of Episcopalian churches, actually Chapelwood gave birth to what became an Episcopalian church <laughs> out of this whole thing. We planted a church in East Downtown, Jacob Breeze. They became an Episcopalian church because they wanted to be more inclusive. Right. So the Episcopalian church is very inclusive. But the biggest Episcopalian church in Houston, and one of the biggest in the nation, decided we're not going to do same-sex marriages. I know the pastor very well is a good friend. They don't do it. And they, but they don't have this animosity towards their brothers and sisters. They're in the same denomination, in the same diocese. And if someone comes and says, hey, we're a gay couple, we want to be married, because you know what, we don't do that here, but we're gonna, we're gonna work with you, we're gonna help you, we're gonna introduce you to these brothers and sisters that will do it. They have no animosity, no anger, no, but they don't, but they hold the ground. Right. Because that's their conscience and belief. Now, I'm thinking, when people say, oh, it's not going to happen, you're going to be forced, you're going to be forced, it's already happening. Yeah. It's already happening in real time where churches can make a, a decision of conscience. Um, and people can agree or disagree. People on the far left are going to not be happy with that decision, as you know. Right. And people on the far but you can't make the argument to say that you're going to be forced when it's already shown that it's happening and working in real time. And that's exactly what we're talking about the United yep. Methodist Church becoming not only with pastors doing weddings, but with churches making their own decision of doing weddings or not. Well, I'd say not just what the United Methodist Church is becoming, but what it already is. I mean, so many lay folks in the midst of all of this have come to me and say, you know, I'm traditional and I'm hearing all this other stuff as to why uh, I need to leave the United Methodist Church. But I thought I thought this is who we are, though. I don't. I don't want to leave my church, you know. And and part of it is this kind of fear mongering, uh, in order to try to get people to move and shift to a place uh, where others can uh, can receive a little bit of power and control. But really, what's really true is that we are the same church we have always been. Right. The same church where you can sit on the same pew with the friends that you have come to love and to know over the years, uh, and you can still worship together, do ministry together, be in mission together, even if you disagree on whether it's the issue same-sex marriage or whatever the issue might be, you can still be in the same church with those same people. And, and let's be clear too, and you can speak to this, when they talk about, well, we're gonna be forced to take an LGBTQ clergy person or whatever. All right, look, United Methodist Church, we got our own baggage. We got stuff we need to figure out and fix. I can tell you, I got friends who have been district superintendents in Georgia, and there are churches that are leaving the denomination now that will not take a female pastor. And there are yeah. white churches that will not take a black pastor. Oh, that's absolutely so, true. So when you say, oh, you're going to force us to take a pastor we don't want, Right. Brother, right, right. I mean, I, I hadn't seen that happening in a long time. I <laughs> well, mean, all of a sudden, that's going to like change. If it, you know, it's like, oh, a white church will take a black pastor. That'd be a great thing. It happens every <laughs> once in a while. Every once in a while. What, but, but you know, it, part of it is, you know, 
you talk to bishops and district superintendents, right, who are in the appointment making business, and they'll tell you two things. One, the discipline mandates that there's this consultative process that bishops and cabinets have to do. You can look it up if you want to get some good bedtime reading. Paragraphs 426 and 427, it talks about this extensive uh, consultation process with churches that specifically outlines giving consideration to theological convictions and prejudices. And what we already know is that bishops and cabinets struggle all the time with these churches that say, uh, we want somebody who's young, who's energetic, and who's preferably male. 20 years, I want somebody who's 32 years old with 30 years of experience, 2.5 kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't send us a woman, and we'll really struggle if you send us a person of color, right? And bishops and cabinets do a whole lot of creative work to try to find appointments for people that are hard to appoint, okay? They do a lot of creative work around that in order to placate these convictions and these prejudices. So to think that in a uh, in whatever foreseeable future, uh, that they will all of a sudden say, all right, now we have gay pastors, so we're going to send them over to the the place that is uh, absolutely not wanting a gay pastor. Yeah. Uh, I think that's hogwash. That does more harm to both the pastor and, and their family and the church and the community. Yeah. I do think in the, in the future, this is not a, a but, but I think in the future, as we see a clergy shortage in the United Methodist Church, which is coming, there's a wave of retirements that are coming. We will not have enough clergy in the future. And you have effective, pa- I think there's a lot of churches that are going to say, just give us a great pastor. Give us somebody who loves Jesus, who loves people, who can effectively preach and teach and lead. And, and I think in the years ahead, people are going to be less about, is this person a married gay or lesbian person? Some will say, absolutely not. We can't do it. It'll really wreck our church. But I think the day's coming when, when people are going to say, send me a pastor who loves Jesus and loves people and is a great preacher and who will care for us. And, uh, and people are sometimes surprised. Yeah at folks that they were afraid to have as pastors. And all of a sudden they say that was our best pastor ever. I think when the first you know, female pastor was appointed. The last thing I'll say, I could tell a hundred stories like this. <laughs> you know this guy, I'm not gonna mention his name because you talked to him on the phone with me the other day. He was a DS and in Georgia. And you know, he went to a church and this, is, this happened many times for when he was a DS. And they, they said, I've got a young female clergy person. She is great, she's up and coming she's gonna be like A plus star player. And I've got this guy who's moved five times in the last 10 years, mediocre at best, right? Um, And I really think you're gonna do best with this female clergy person. I think she's gonna take you to the next level. And they they think about it, they come back and go, we want the guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. More times than I can can tell yeah. you, he he could go, he could sit here and list the names and the places and all this kind of stuff. These are the churches that are departing, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And he's and he said, "All right, look, you know what I'm going to do." And this is what they did. He said, "We're going to send you the guy, but don't call me in a year <laughs> asking for this female clergy person because you're going to keep him because he's moved every two years. You're going to keep him. You're going to keep him, and I'm not moving him." Yeah. They called in eight months. Is the is the woman still available? <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not moving him. Yep. I mean, in this, this, so what I'm saying is, we got our own stuff. We got to figure out, yeah, work yeah. on. That's right. But to make the argument that somehow you're going to be forced on somebody's going to be forced on you, I mean, you, you're going to need to find a new argument because we've yeah. already we we've already not done well with that in our own history. We've got a lot of that to work on That's in the right. United Methodist Church. But to make that as an argument to scare people, come on, you gotta, you gotta do better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So the United Methodist Church has been known as the Church of the Via Media, the middle way. We have Republicans and Democrats. My church is almost equally divided between them. We have people who are on the left and the right, the social gospel, the evangelical gospel, liberals and conservatives, the whole thing. And that many people have seen as our strength. Hmm. So, you know, as you think about this and this issue, you know, and whether traditionalists will be you know, accepted and whether, you know, progressives have felt, you know, will we be marginalized, you know, in the past? How do you see that? I mean, you know, this, some people don't like the term, but big tent or, you know, a, a church of the middle way. What do you think about that? Is this, how does that fit into this conversation? Well, I mean, we've always been that kind of church and I don't see that changing for us um, in, in any way. Um, 
I came to faith in the Assembly of God Church. Uh, that's where I was most discipled and really, uh, really felt the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is active in life and in the world, and that the Holy Spirit can do amazingly abundant things beyond my own comprehension. But beyond this, the simple fact of the Holy Spirit working within me, I didn't have anything uh, centered around uh, really how the Holy Spirit can be a part of uh, the communal context in a way that, that helps to really make disciples who transform the world. And when I came to United Methodist Church, part of what I gained was this, this full reasoning uh, between uh, personal piety and then social witness, right? That yes, having a deep faith in Jesus and loving God deeply was good, but then that ought to express itself in how we live our lives individually and socially in the world. It ought to express itself in the ways in which we um, seek justice and liberty and peace and reconciliation in the world. Um, what that said to me was that there was a place in the United Methodist Church, a place in this church then for a both and. That's really who we are, who we've always been. We've got to have that vital piety uh, connected with social witness here. Um, and that leads then to this tension between those who, who, are, um, who at times feel we need to get back to the, the true uh, essence of our faith, as well as holding on to the coattails of the Holy Spirit that's continually pushing us out to the margins of faith as well. There's a both and a tension that's inherent within the church that has always been there from its beginning and is present now, and I think will always be with us. Yeah. John, what do you think? What I, you know, I, I've said this before. I think that the, the, the political, cultural, sociological stuff is, has seeped into the American church just way too much. And we've lost our way in modeling and being a witness to Jesus in the world to hold the tensions together. Mm -hmm. And we used to do that. And actually our politics used to do that. Sure. I remember when I grew up in Georgia, there was a, a you know, they used to call them blue dog Democrats. Mm -hmm. You know, they were yeah. Democrats, but they were really conservative. You're right. Well, all the blue dog Democrats had to change party, you know, because of the, 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 the cultural and political shifting that mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. And now we see this in the denomination where, you know, you have these polarized corners and, and sometimes, uh, you know, well, not sometimes, but what they do is they, they just, they, they act to divide us. Right. They really do. And when you look at the word in the, in the Bible, especially in the Greek, the word for the devil, the diabolos is the one who divides. Mm -hmm. Whereas Jesus is the one who comes to save the sozo is to make whole, yes. to bring together. And so to hold the things in tension is important. It's been tough for me. You know, I, I grew up very conservative, traditionalist, you know, stuff. And sometimes I go to some of these meetings uh, that, that people rant and rave about and said, oh my gosh, here's what they do. You know, they're protesting all this kind of stuff. And it's hard for me. Sometimes I go, yeah, this is not helpful, you know, but I understand that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting. And we saw the same thing in the past couple of years where I've had to tell people, be empathetic. Exactly. You know, you, you might not be marching in the street for George Floyd or for or Ahmaud Arbery. Right. And, and you might be mad about what you see on TV going on. What I tell people is, can you put yourself in their shoes for a moment? Can you have some Christian empathy for a moment? Yep. And that's what I think about people who've been harmed by the church, whether they be LGBTQ people or anyone mm -hmm. that has not found a seat at the table. It's like, I don't see that. As, as, as what Jesus does in the gospel. So if we're, if we're trying to get to a doctrinally pure, like church, where yeah. everything is perfect, which, which there have been sects that have tried to do this through the, that's not what John Wesley, John Wesley never did a systematic theology. He was like a man of the world and of the time. Right. And he reached the people, he went to where they are out in the fields. He spoke the language of the time, you know, he wrote, he wrote books about medicine and education and he brewed his own, you know, he made his own, he drank of wine and he, and he's like holding this things in tension together. And that's what I th try to think is like, I don't always agree with everyone, but it's like in all things, we gotta have love for one another. Yeah. We can't leave the table. I think it's Bonhoeffer that said, that's the greatest sin. When you walk away from the table, that's, that's the one unpardonable mm -hmm. sin. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I see happening in our culture, and now it's filtered down into our church, and it 
grieves me to see that people are following this. There is a place for everyone at the table, even when you disagree. It happens every Sunday in our pews, in your pews, in your pews, everywhere else. And they love each other. They take casseroles to each other. You know, it's like this person would never in a hundred million years vote for a Democrat. And this person would never in a hundred million years vote for a Republican. And man, one of them sick or having surgery in the hospital, they're and right they're there. there with each other. Yep. They're yep. taking care of each other. There was a lady here the other night. He's just like, I, I haven't been to church because I'm taking care of someone. Totally different views on stuff. Yep. She's like, but I got to be with her on Saturday and Sunday morning. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. that that's what the church is has always been and needs to continue to be. Well, and this is where I felt that the United Methodist Church is perhaps one of the greatest hopes for the future of America, the United States, because we are that bridge. We are that both and we have, you know, we're willing to hold things in tension. So today we find people moving to another city or another state so that they can be around people who are the same Mm. part political party they are. You know, we watch in the elections people saying things that are outright ridiculous about the other party, trying to scare people against voting for that guy. And, uh, and our task, I think, is to be able to say, wait a minute, that's not really, that's not really true. That's and, not how it works. And the last yeah. thing I'll say is, is they, they, they will, no, this is important, you laugh, I will say that we are being accused in the United Methodist Church of ceding to the culture, of yeah. giving in to the culture, the slippery slope and all this kind of stuff. What we're talking about is being countercultural. That's right. What we're talking about is countering a culture that's splitting into tribes, but to be the body of Christ that brings everyone together. That mm-hmm. is countercultural, not ceding to the culture. Right, right. Uh, you know, in this culture that is um, where all of this conversation is predicated upon fear and fear mongering, really, <laughs> right? Uh, I think part of what we have to remember over and over again is what is the deep truth we learn from Scripture, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, which tells us that God doesn't give us the spirit of fear. If we are afraid, we ought to question, why are we afraid and who is making us afraid? Because it ain't God. Mm. Yeah. God gives us power, love, and a sound mind, right? Those are the things that help point us to the move and the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us. And if the move and the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us is calling us together to be a part of something new, to be a part of what God is doing in our midst, to be a part of having compassion and love for each other, well, we ought to have set aside fear and move in that direction then. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Every one of the New Testament books, all 27 books, have as their background, at least in part, some kind of division between people. Sure. So the Gospels are written to, to address, I mean, underneath the surface, there, mm-hmm. is, there are divisions in the church that are being addressed. The book of Acts, of course, all of the epistles. So, you know, the great passages, whether it's John 17, that they might be one as we are one. Jesus is praying the night before he dies. Why yeah. does he have to pray that? <laughs> and why does John record that 80 years after, you know, or 50 years after Jesus' death? Except this is the reality in the church at that time. Or, you know, First John, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. I mean, they were constantly, you know, the, the apostles are constantly trying to hold people together because even then, Christians... We're naturally naturally had a tendency to divide over things, and yeah. so bringing people together and holding them together is an essential part of the gospel. I also find you mentioned the countercultural, and you know people tell me, well, you're you know you're giving to the culture by embracing and welcoming LGBTQ people, and I'm like, you know, I actually think, as you noted, this is countercultural, but it's it's at the heart of the gospel is that we're going to love and welcome people, and it's you know it's costly sometimes. There's people who are you know, who um, leave the church. There's people who say harmful things. There's, but to be able to say, I'm standing up for loving people. We're going to love people. We're going to welcome the people who are here. And, uh, and we're going to look carefully about how do we interpret scripture and how do we read scripture? And we'll be having another conversation about that in a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks yeah. for helping. Yeah. Thank you guys. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Emily and Tom, it's great to be with you today. Thank you for joining in this conversation. Absolutely. So uh, people are saying that the United Methodist Church uh, those who are leaving are saying the United Methodist Church has a low view of Scripture, uh, doesn't really you know hold to the authority of Scripture, is not going to be. You know, if you love the Bible, you're not going to feel comfortable in the United Methodist Church. Is that true? No. Um, I mean, I would say that's categorically false. Um, every pastor that I know and my church members have a high view of Scripture. It's a significant part of their lives. It's something we read together. It's something we encourage folks to read on their own. It's something that. I read on my own, both for study and for devotion, and um, my experience of scripture in the local church is about the way that it transforms people. 
um, and that when they are able to bring everything to bear on it, their own experiences and questions mm. and the tradition that they've learned, um, that's when scripture transforms them the most. Yeah. Um, and that it holds, they find that it holds strong to their questions, yeah. um, that there's nothing fragile about it, and that, that, that they can really bring all of that to scripture and experience God through it, experience the Holy Spirit through studying it together. Absolutely. Tom, uh, tell us about the authority of Scripture. What does that mean, the authority of the Bible? And do United Methodists hold to the authority of the Bible? Well, here's what I believe. I, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. I, I, I believe that. I, the, the difficult part is the Bible says it part, right? So mm -hmm. I start from a place that says that settles it. I believe it. That settles it. But I got to get to the point where I understand what the Bible says. And that continues to be a, a journey and a wrestling match and a struggle and a conversation about how do I understand what this, what this book is teaching me? Uh, because, it, it, you know, uh, just this last uh, Sunday, I was preaching about Acts 16, and I saw something new that I had never seen before. Yeah. And I was like, this is, I can feel my heart beating faster as I'm preparing the sermon, thinking, my goodness, this is what he's teaching us and what this scripture is about. And so um, it's that continual unfolding of scripture that takes, um, it's a it's a labor of love for me, but it's labor. I mean, you you you've got to uh, dig into it, and as a pastor, I think my job is to be the lead studier, yeah. right? So I, I hope my congregation studies, but I recognize that, wow, what a gift. They pay me to do this. Yeah. I, they pay me to study the Bible and to engage with people and to help break it open for people. And so it is absolutely the authority of our lives. Yeah. Um, but to understand what God is teaching us through it is... Um, is the is the challenge and the journey of of our faith yeah i love that that's a really great way to think about that that we start with we know this has authority for our lives and but we have to figure out what does it actually say exactly. which is the interpretive role right and this is what the jewish people time immemorial have been debating scripture arguing over scripture and and as they did that they were coming to new conclusions they were reaching new understandings of and for us, it's looking at, you know, when we're studying the commentaries, we're looking at what's the historical and cultural context. Right. What did the biblical author mean to say? What was the Holy Spirit intending to help us hear through this? And then in the end saying, and I'm going to live that. And there are places where we have to, I mean, we both, we all three know there are places we get in scripture. We go, okay, I know it says that. I don't think God intends us to do that right. today, mm -hmm. right? right? I right. mean, beat right. your children with rods. Well, no, none of us are going to bind no. sticks together and beat our children. But we're going to ask, what's the principle behind that, right? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so 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 uh, in the United Methodist tradition, we talk about the quadrilateral, and the quadrilateral being scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some people say, well, many of those United Methodists, they just think that all four of those things are are equal. That that you know, they just put as much stock in experience or reason or tradition as they do in scripture. Is that true, Emily? I don't know anyone who does that. Um, I think that we know the quadrilateral and we know that all those things are important and that we bring those things to bear on scripture, um, but that scripture is the primary foundation um, of how we know and understand, I mean, certainly the Bible itself, but how we come to know God. And, um, you know, it's the first thing we teach kiddos in our church is, I mean, first we teach them that God loves them and the way we know is that we have these stories in our Bibles and we give them a Bible to read. Right. Jesus loves um, me, this I know, for the, the Bible, Bible tells, tells me, me so. so. Yeah. Absolutely, and so we, I think we know that scripture is um, the thing that we can trust and bring those other things to our experience, our traditions, our reason to help us understand it better, to help us engage it more fully. Um, I know, Adam, you've mentioned that when our Jewish siblings read scripture, they're constantly wrestling and asking questions and knowing that they're never going to have it all the way figured out. And for them, that means that it's strong and not that it's weak. Right. And, it's and a that living helps word, them right? trust it's, it more yeah. rather than less. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we understand is that we have Jesus, mm -hmm. who is that living word. Mm -hmm. So the Bible is the word of God, mm -hmm. but Jesus is the living word mm -hmm. of God. And so that gives us an interpretive um, tool to use as we try and read through scripture, because, you know, uh, th those 
in those old Bibles where Jesus' words were in red, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. They carried we, a higher authority. They, they carried higher Jesus authority. Jesus is the definitive word of God. That's He's exactly the right. inerrant word of God. He's mm-hmm. the infallible word of God. He is the word of God made flesh. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, Jesus, interestingly enough, had some interpretive lenses that he gave mm-hmm. us when he talked about the great commandments and the golden rule. And so when you think about that, what, what do you think Jesus was saying when he says, you know, the law and the prophets are summarized by these two great commandments? Mm-hmm. What, how does that impact how we read the rest of Scripture? I mean, I think that gives us a trajectory of Scripture, right? The Scripture is full of stories and full of all kinds of themes that we will never plumb all of the depths of, but that the things that it finally boils down to, according to Jesus, the law, the prophets, it all hangs on loving God with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so if the way that we are reading it is not making us more loving of God and our neighbors, it's time to reassess our reading. Yeah. Um, if it's making us, um, if it's making us more closed off, more difficult, more, um, more isolated, yeah. It doesn't yeah. really follow the trajectory that Jesus has given us. Yeah. I think we have to be really careful, though, because sometimes we, we just say, well, it's all about love. Right. And, and that becomes this sort of namby-pamby picture of yeah. what right. love is. Yeah. And, and love is sometimes very hard and very challenging yes. and, and um, very difficult and requires us to, you know, uh, forgive someone seven times, 70 times mm-hmm. when, when what they've done is an abomination, is, a, is this really difficult thing. Mm-hmm. How, how do we live that kind of forgiveness? Mm-hmm. So it's not just this gooey, no. uh, this gooey kind of love. It's, uh, it's really struggling with the scripture to say, what does love ask me to do in this moment? How and in can this I community where I live, I mean, so love in this context, exactly. That's right. Like yep. love is yep. always something tangible. It's not some namby pamby, I think is the word you right. use, but it's not this esoteric thing that just exists right. around us, but are things that we do that are really difficult sometimes. Um, having to forgive people who have wronged us, having to show kindness to people who, in our estimation, for whatever reason, don't deserve our kindness. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's the cross. Right. I mean, right? Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the words of the hymn, as we see uh, him on the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know it. Uh, so th- that, for me, is the main lens with which mm-hmm. we look at the rest of Scripture and say. All right, so how how might this have been love in action mm-hmm. in that place, in that time? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think often about uh, St. Paul and uh, because he's such a practical guy, you know, mm-hmm. he's he's taking this uh, this rabbi who often, you know, they would ask uh, Jesus what he want for dinner and he told him a story about a fish, you know? <laughs> and so Paul is trying to take that and apply it to a Roman world in a Roman time with specific situations. And a divided church. And a often. divided, in a divided community and saying, all right, let's, let's figure out how this works mm-hmm. in this place, in this time. And that, and the Bible gives us the examples of how it was done in that culture in that time so that we can use those same principles mm-hmm. and apply it to our time and our lives. Let's talk directly about the issue that's really dividing us in the United Methodist Church, and that's how we understand the scriptures, how we interpret scripture when it comes to a gay and lesbian people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so when we come to that, there are some who say, well, if you don't hold this, you know, you don't take these literally and you apply these literally, you have a, a low view of scripture, you have a low authority, you know, your, the authority of scripture is low in your life. So I want to ask, is that true? And how, why are we even having conversations about human sexuality when the Bible has these passages? You know, if a man lies with a man as with a woman, he should be stoned to death. Why are, so it's pretty clear right there. I just want to ask, so how are you looking at those scriptures? How are you, you know, and, and why are we even discussing this? Why aren't we just saying, well, there it is. The Bible says that I believe it. That settles it about that. Sure. Um... I mean, I want to repeat perhaps that I think having a high view of scripture doesn't mean we just look at it and say, well, this is clear, right? Because being clear 
again, I can take a rod and stone my children if I or beat my children if I want to. I'm not allowed to collect interest, which I think modern folks might have something to say about. Um, a high view of scripture would mean that we would have to take everything Jesus see, says about money really literally. Um, we wouldn't be able to spiritualize Luke's gospel when he says, sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. We would have to sell everything we had and give the money to the poor. <laughs> um, and so I don't believe that being a literal, not being a literalist in that way means I have a low view of scripture. And so those particular texts, there's a handful of them in the Bible. And so I do what I do when I read every scripture is I read it in the context in which it was given to the best of my ability. I look at where it is in the story itself, what's going on in the world around it, what the author is trying to tell us and what it means for us now. Um, And so that may mean that what I interpret from that scripture shakes out a little different than what you, Tom, interpret or what you, Adam, interpret. And that means we have to talk about that more. Um, that doesn't mean we walk to our own corners and say, okay, I guess we're, we're done here. We disagree on this. Right. Um, and so I don't think to, to look at, that, at those scriptures carefully and in as much context and knowledge as we can possibly have. I mean, we're so lucky now that we right, have so right. much available to us to help us understand scripture Um, And to say, I'm going to read this to the best of my ability with all of this, um, I think that would be to have a low view of scripture, um, is to not take it seriously and not read it as carefully and fully as possible, and in ways that are through this lens of love that Jesus gave us. Right. How about you, Tom? It seems to me that, um, you know, for me, I spent a lot of time studying this very issue Mm -hmm. because my church, the United Methodist Church was facing it. we had had a special call general conference, and we had to wrestle with it and make a decision. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, for me, the place that reason came in was when science began to teach us mm-hmm. that people don't choose whether they're they're gay or not, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's you know um, uh, built into them. We don't know if it's DNA somehow. We don't know if it's uh, some chemical issues, but but it doesn't appear that people make that as a choice. And so that that makes me read the scripture in a different way because at at the the way the scripture is uh describes it it is a choice people are making and they are living it out in a way in the Roman world that was oppressive that was older men with with uh, boys, mm-hmm. um, it was a, a religious practice that was was an abomination. Frankly, was an abomination, and was at that time what uh, Acts sixteen, uh, Acts fifteen calls uh, sexual immorality. You know, that's what they were condemning. But that's not the same thing as people living together in faithfulness. Um, what you know? It's funny. I I don't see this as a a, a move uh, uh, towards full inclusion and for, towards gay marriage as a relaxing of sexual standards. In, in fact, what I think we're doing is calling gay people to faithfulness. Right? We're we're saying we we want you to experience faithfulness in your relationships. And, you know, even Paul says you, you, you aren't condemned to celibacy. Celibacy is a choice that mm-hmm. people make. It's not something that you're condemned to. So mm-hmm. uh, I just feel, you know, as I've have spent so many hours trying to understand what Scripture said about this, because so many of our congregation are struggling, um, you know, for me, that's how I finally land is in that place. Yeah. And we have... You know, all of us as pastors, at least, have spent hundreds and hundreds of hours studying Scripture, trying to understand this. So, what we have said is that we're going to. This is not about the authority of the Bible. This is about interpretation of the Bible. And so, there's room in our church for us to work through the interpretive questions, and that there are people who might hold differing views of how we interpret those texts, Mm -hmm. who love the Bible, who see, you know, understand it has our primary authority for faith and practice. Mm -hmm. But we're also saying we have, you know, we, we can disagree on this, and we have to read those texts in light, the six passages, in light of the broader message of Scripture, which has to do with God's concern for human beings. It's not good for the human to be alone. I'll make for him a partner as his companion. I mean, all of these kind of passages which point to God's concern for individuals. And the more we know today, the more we say, 
okay, if this is, to your point, Tom, if this is something that's either nature or nurture, but I can't change this about myself. And we know, we, you know often people are harmed by the efforts of trying to change you know, their, right. their sexual orientation. Then how does the church respond? And I remember Billy Graham years ago, you know, he wasn't involved in this debate, but somebody asked him, you know, do you, you know, what would you do if one of your kids was gay? And, and he said, I would love them all the more because they would need all that much more love. And the implication was there's a world that's, that's hurt a lot of gay and lesbian people. Now his view wouldn't be the same as, as your view or my view, but, but this idea that God calls us to love, we're understanding, we're constantly growing in our understanding of, of human beings, human sexuality, and we are calling people to a high standard when it comes to sexual ethics and, uh, and not lowering our sexual ethic. And we're also trying to live a life of love. I also don't want to let go of what I think is a really significant role the United Methodist Church can have to play in the lives of people specifically who the Bible was used as a weapon against. Yeah. So I've oh, always right. worked in churches with lots of folks. Uh, our kind of niche at my church is folks who've been burned by the church before and for like who had the Bible used against them in a weaponized way. Um, and so watching folks who've experienced that, but then come to love the Bible, when they learn that it has all of this context around it, that you can bring your mind to the table when you read it, that we want your experience, your reason, the, the weight of this tradition, we want all of it on here and it will hold, and it can still give you life and joy and happiness and holiness. Uh, all in the same way. The United Methodist Church can do that in ways not a lot of traditions can. Yeah. Um, and I, I would hate to see us um, lose anything about that role that we have to play in the community with folks who um, have experienced the Bible really negatively to come to find a way they can read it again and find life in it. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. I was thinking about Frederick Doug Douglass, the abolitionist who, mm -hmm. uh, and, and liberated slave. And he was testifying before a group of people once, and he was describing how the slave masters would use scripture to, mm -hmm. to reiterate their authority over their slaves and their ability to do whatever they wanted. And he described, and I don't remember if it was his wife or a sister or you know, some family member who was being beaten by the slave master and the blood dripping down on her feet. And he was quoting scripture the whole time mm -hmm. as he's doing this. And so you, you, know, you think about the times, the 273 verses in the Bible that, that you know, speak of slavery and none of them in a sense of God condemning it. Um, it wasn't like the Bible thought slavery was a great idea. It was just right. an assumption, a cultural assumption. Right. And so you could beat your slave with rods as long as they didn't die within two days. There was no penalty because uh, Exodus says the slave is your property. And, but today, we, you know, it took a long time for the church to go, hey, nah. you know what? That isn't right. <laughs> Very right. long that time. That is not yeah, right. And, not and, it, right. and it took until the 1900s right. for the church to look at all the things Paul says about women keeping silent in the church and having no authority mm -hmm. over a man and saying, you know, that's just not right. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit works right. through women and men. Mm -hmm. And so whatever the cultural or historical context was in which Paul is speaking is not our context. And right. we have to change that. And I find it interesting, even the GMC is saying, we're going to ordain women. And you look to see more fundamentalist and, and conservative churches say, well, if you ordain women, you don't believe in the Bible. You have a low view of scripture. You have, you, you've abandoned the authority of the Bible because the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it as they see it. And even the GMC is saying, yeah, but not in this case. In this mm -hmm. case, we need to do something different than what the plain word of scripture means. We are all interpreting scripture. We're all asking questions about the Bible and trying to, and, and we do it because we love it. We do it because the Bible means something to us because it has authority in our lives. But that authority isn't just silently taking everything you read directly the way it is, or we'd, we'd be doing a lot of other stuff, you know, putting our children to death if they were persistently right. disobedient or mm -hmm. burning a daughter, you know, alive if she was a prostitute and a whole host of other things that are inconsistent with the life, the character and the witness of Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. So I want to ask you, do you how much, so the, the sense you get when you listen to some of these videos is that, you know, those of us who are staying United Methodist don't read the Bible. Right. We don't care about the Bible. Tell me about your personal, how much do you read the Bible? And, and, and and what does the Bible mean personally to you? Wow. Uh, I read the Bible every morning for devotional reasons. And then um, pretty much every day I'm in some way doing it uh, for work, right? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm unpacking it for a sermon or for a lesson or for something. And so uh, I, I find myself very 
uh, I don't know if comfortable is the right word in it. Comfortable uh, and used to the discomfort I feel when I run across those passages. The truth is that for me, it's not so much the passages I don't understand that bother me, but the ones I do. Right. And uh, the places I'm like, I, I'm not quite ready to do that. God, I'm trying. I'm trying to to make progress on forgiveness. I'm trying to turn the other cheek. I'm trying to live the life that you've taught me. So I spend lots of time um, um, in scripture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about you, Emily? I mean, the same. Um, I read scripture most days for both devotion and work. I've been teaching a Bible study on Tuesday nights since I started in ministry at every church I've gone to, um, to make sure that I have that discipline, not only of just devotional reading, but, but, but of preparation to both teach and preach and to read with other people. Yeah. Um, we're studying John's gospel this summer, and it's been a long time since I've read it straight through. And like, it's just coming to life in so many ways and um, has so many it just incredible stories and watching folks encounter these characters uh, and find in them friends and companions in the journey is a real gift. Um, I mean, it's part of what has, you know, I think been really painful about this process is hearing colleagues and folks who know me even say, I don't take the Bible seriously. Yeah, that, I don't read that. the Bible. Um, when, uh, you know, I read the Bible constantly in our church on Sundays. Even we read at least two pretty long passages of scripture, sometimes maybe three or four. Cause I know for some folks, even if we're encouraging them, they're not reading the Bible at home that much. And I want to make sure they hear as much of it as they can. The, the good stuff that we like hearing and the stuff we maybe are a little, uh, a little iffier about uh-huh. in the Bible. I want to make sure that we're getting all of it. Right. Um, and as much as we possibly can. Yeah, that's awesome. I find in my own life it's the same. Every morning starts with reading scripture. I'm praying the scriptures. I've memorized the scriptures. I'm learning and studying the scriptures. I'm, I'm preaching the scriptures. And when I think about a high view of scripture, a high view of scripture to me isn't woodenly reading the Bible and accepting everything literally as you find it. Uh, a high view of scripture, and, and I find a lot of people who talk about having a high view of scripture, when I actually get down to it, you know, I start digging down, a lot of them don't even read the Bible. Mm-hmm. So they don't read it, but they have a high view of scripture. And that high view of scripture is somehow tied to how you interpret a handful of passages. And and so for me, a high view of scripture is not reading it literally. It's, it is reading it. If you have a high view of scripture, you better be reading the Bible. You better be studying the Bible. And then the most important thing is you better be living the Bible. Mm. And there's a whole lot of people who claim to have a high view of scripture that don't seem to live a whole lot of the principal precepts within scripture. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know all of you are the same. I want to encourage United Methodists to be people of the, of the scripture, people Absolutely. of the book. John Wesley said, I'm a man of one book. And uh, at resurrection, we give out pocket testaments to every single person who joins the church. We give them to our visitors if they want them. We ask people to carry it. We say it's more important than the American Express card. Don't leave home without it. We ask them to carry it wherever they go. It's an expectation for member, membership at resurrection that you read the Bible. So we just say, we're expecting you to read the Bible. We, we'd like it to be at least five verses a day, but we're going to ask you to read something every day. We send them an email with scriptures every day and a, and a uh, you know, a, a, a kind of study questions for it. And we want people in Bible study. And, you know, I, I think that's who we are as United Methodists. And, and if we haven't been that, then this is a great time for us to call all of our people to Absolutely. a deep study of scripture. But I am offended by the idea mm-hmm. that there are folks out there saying, yeah, those United Methodists, they have a yeah, low view of scripture you know, and they don't really study the scripture. And One of the gifts the United Methodist Church has given the wider church too is disciple Bible study. That is one of the most intensive read through the Bible processes I've done and groups that do it are transformed by it. That's right. That's um, right. And that's a gift the United Methodist that's Church right. has given that other traditions use now. Um, so I don't, I don't think you can do a disciple Bible study and say that United Methodists don't take the Bible seriously. Absolutely. It's significant reading. Yep. I want to read this passage of scripture that's often quoted uh, by some folks who, uh, who are thinking about leaving. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I read that passage, and when he talks about all Scripture, part of what we have to ask is, what was he talk, What was Paul talking about? And, of course, the New Testament wasn't, wasn't written yet. He's helping to write the New Testament. So and the Scriptures weren't bound together in a book. They were scrolls, right? And so there were different collections of scrolls. There was one in Jerusalem, one in Alexandria. And he seems to be saying all of those texts are God-breathed. Mm-hmm. And then you ask, well, what, is, what does the word God-breathed mean or inspired mean? 
And nobody really knows because Paul made the word up. This is the only time in the Bible it shows up. And it's the first time in, in the Greek language that we know of where this word is used. And so it can mean God erred, God breathed. It can mean God breathes on the writer as they're writing. It can mean God breathes through the text as you read it. I mean, there's a whole host of ways that we just have to ask, what did that mean exactly? Mm-hmm. But the thing that's super clear is this, that scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I take that scripture seriously. I have it memorized. I try to live that. And I also recognize that that doesn't say that you read every scripture literally, woodenly. It doesn't say Mm -hmm. that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Jesus is the inerrant word of God. The Bible is, you know, God's test, you know, is the testimony of scripture to God and God's will. And, um, I guess I just wanted to say, I'm assuming that you all see it the same way, that this is why we read the Bible so much. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's what it's absolutely. for. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right. Hey, it's great talking to you all today. Thank you. Enjoyed you it. Thanks. Thank you. Absolutely. Hello, neighbor. How are you? Really want to shower you with love. Hello, neighbor. How are you? Really want to challenge you.